A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and not impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. If you thought last week was a good show, well, buckle up, Buttercup, as today's show is going to be even better. Renowned climate scientist Dr. Kimberly Rainminer is back to finish up last week's conversation on zombie fires and what we might find in the melting permafrost, as well as being an oh-so-important role model for young women. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and while I'm not sure why you would, if you missed last week's show and feel like you need a deeper introduction for our guest today, besides knowing she is the Jimi Hendrix of the climate science world, then I encourage you to go back and have a listen. But for now, I couldn't be more excited to build off the fun we had last week and say, Dr. Miner, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's so good to see you again. Two weeks in a row, I feel feel privileged. It's so good to see you as well. And that's extremely kind to say, but I think the audience and I are the privileged ones here, especially having a bit of insight into your incredibly busy schedule. Now, before we dive in today, I'd love to bring the listeners in on the conversation we were just having before the show. Okay, sure. So folks, we were talking about how next week we'd be off as I'm headed to the field to spend some time looking at a few glaciers in the Pacific Northwest with my good mate and climbing partner, Kevin Sean. And that led to chatting about Dr. Miner's work out in the field, which brings me to the question. Dr. Miner, while I know you're a kayaker, when you aren't in the lab or on some far-flung expedition, are you into mountaineering as well, or is there some other outdoor pursuit you're into? Yeah, I love the mountains. I grew up in Colorado. When I was living in Maine, the mountains were a little bit, didn't take as long to climb. Let's put it that way. It only took a couple hours to climb the mountains in Maine. Hey, I grew up in Oklahoma. The highest point's what, like eight feet? (laughs) Just doesn't take that long to climb. No, it doesn't take that long at all. So I do love mountaineering. We go hiking every weekend, camping. I mean, really anything in the outdoors in so much as if you can get a better perspective from the air, skydiving. I'm hoping to look at maybe doing pilot's license or pilot training here pretty soon, just in little little airplanes. So anything outdoors is is my jam. That's awesome. When I was very, very little, my dad took us to the mountains and put us on boulders and said, all right, get down. So that's how I learned to rock climb. And uh, I've I've been climbing ever since. So you're a climber. Yeah, I do more bouldering than technical climbing just because I don't know, it's it's a lot of gear and I as far as time goes, I don't have a ton of time. So it's much easier for me to just strap on some bouldering shoes. You don't have time? Come on. <laughs> so do you have a favorite bouldering problem you have done? Oh, have you done Midnight Lightning Yosemite? I mean, I failed at it, but Lynn Hill did it in 98, so I'm sure you would crush it. No, I actually haven't done any climbing in Yosemite yet. I had a girlfriend who did that last weekend, and my incredible jealousy, I think, indicated that I should probably do that. 
in Colorado, I used to climb Boulder Canyon a lot. I used to go after school as soon as I could drive and do unrecommended dangerous things. But I was I was a teenager and I, I made it through. So a lot of bouldering problems in the Boulder Canyon. You know, it's funny. Back in undergrad, I climbed a lot in the gunks in upstate New York. And my buddy's mom, who was born and raised on Long Island, always referred to our shoes and chalk as idiot shoes and ego powder. <laughs> Because in her words, every time we put our shoes on, we went out and did stupid stuff. And anytime we put chalk on our hands, we thought we were so much better than we actually were. So on that note, in the in the in New York uh, foothills, we went and did waterfall rappelling one year for my birthday, which is literally just jumping down the side of a waterfall over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, we'll have to go climbing sometime. I've got to say, it's one of my true passions. However, I've gotten a lot more into mountaineering over the past several years, but it does require a fair bit more gear than my idiot shoes and ego powder. Yeah, and a lot of brain power. You got to make sure all your your knots are right and your your everything is hooked up right. And sometimes I just want to go for a, a nice uphill walk. I get that. I do. However, here we are five minutes into the show and the two of us are just laughing, telling stories. And I'm sure I've probably lost half the audience already while we're having fun. So we better dive in before everyone else leaves. (laughs) Let's go. So a little bird just told me that you just submitted some research for publication. Is there any chance you can give us a preview of the subject matter or better yet, the findings? Or are you just going to make us wait since I guess I just broke the news here? Well, I've got a literature review that I am working on with some really impressive researchers in the field. And hopefully that'll be out soon, looking at the change in carbon stocks in the permafrost, what that means for what we call the permafrost carbon feedback, which is just a fancy way to say greenhouse gases emitted by the Arctic, and abrupt thaw, which is, you know, those holes that you see in pictures in the in Russia and mm-hmm. the Arctic, and I think sometimes in Canada, that's all examples of abrupt thaw where suddenly the permafrost collapses. So we got that going out. Okay. And then I've got a paper in review looking at what we're calling biogeochemical hazards in the Arctic and a compendium of chemical, nuclear, mineral, like mercury hazards, and the ways that those could potentially move through the system and cause larger scale impacts or even regional impacts. You know, it's still it's still important. People still live in the Arctic. So it's it's important to understand how that could affect local populations as well. And then I saw there was a, a paper that came out what a couple days ago. I think you carried it too, Brian, about Greenland mercury and how mercury is moving through the landscape after the Greenland ice sheet is yeah. lost. So in the in what we call the paraglacial environment, like where ice meets the soil. Okay. And you're correct. We did carry that. But if you don't mind, as that's not something most of us often hear talk about when we discuss climate change, why don't you explain a bit of how the mercury got there and why it's such a critical issue now that we're experiencing a warming Arctic? You know, the mercury has gone to Greenland and in the Arctic has been deposited through a variety of different methods. Some of it's atmospheric, some of it's direct deposition, some of it's, you know, in the substrate, in the uh, rocks already. But I think that, you know, you see this aggregation in a lot of these cold environments, the aggregation of chemicals, the aggregation of mercury, where things just kind of get trapped in the Arctic. And like I was saying earlier, that was great for humans for a long time. We could put stuff in the Arctic, walk away and know that it was going to stay there. And we didn't have to think about it ever again. 
So the difference now is that now that we're seeing thawing and melting, you really need to start thinking about all this stuff that you put away in this warehouse of ice and snow that is no longer standing. Oh, you mean like the Black Plague victims that were buried in the Arctic, what, 680 years ago, or that anthrax reindeer that died some 75 years ago they found in 2016 in Siberia? Yeah, some of this stuff. I mean, it gets really gross. It gets the the amalgamation of what we've got up there is really. I have I have no idea um, how it's going to go, but I I guess I don't really want to see what the combination of mercury, oil, black pig microbes, nuclear waste brings. Like, I just don't. I think we just shouldn't do that. We should just try to keep the permafrost frozen. We should just do our best to not thaw the cryosphere because I just. I can't imagine anything good is going to come of this. No, no, I can't imagine anything good's going to come of it either. But that does bring up a good point. Many of us often hear about geoengineering. Is it good? Is it not? Does it play into climate delayism? In fact, I just had a gentleman ask me the other day if there were any viable options to refreeze the Arctic and the permafrost. And while I endeavor to not share my opinions on this show... You are more than welcome to do so. So I'd love to hear your take on the whole idea. So my personal opinion on geoengineering is that we have relatively little understanding of the full system of Earth, how the ecosystems work and function together, how the oceans work and impact other areas. We have a a good understanding through, you know, hundreds of years of research, but we are just scratching the surface on the complexity that is the Earth. So to fundamentally change more than we already are with climate change, the structure of these ecosystems through geoengineering, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about that because I think that there are potential significant impacts that we just probably wouldn't be able to foresee. I have a number of colleagues, especially in Switzerland, who I've talked to about this. And I think even some of the folks in the geoengineering field are concerned about this unknown unknown and how we may be intentionally introducing black swans simply by trying to tinker with the complexity that is the earth system. That makes a ton of sense as we really are just now getting out of this linear way of thinking and bringing in the whole idea of systems thinking. And When you just mentioned introducing black swans, it immediately took me back to my political days where I spoke a lot about the unintended consequences of poorly thought out policy action. And it seems like what you are saying is along those same lines. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Miner, I'm going to drop a live challenge on you as you and I both know the importance of narratives and analogies. So what is something along those lines you could pass on to the audience to use in their own conversations when they get stuck debating geoengineering? I think that as a, maybe a silly analog, they sent Kalel to Earth and he became Superman because they were unable to geoengineer. Saving their own planet. So let's let's take these as as indices of how we should behave in the future. (laughs) That is brilliant. I am definitely stealing that one. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I always think about you know we're we're sitting here watching these shows about Krypton, and I'm like, did no one get that this was an analogy? Like, are we what did what did what did everybody miss here? Everybody's too busy staring at the giant S and the cape and. The no, that's fair. hair. I mean, that's fair. Yes, the hair. The, that was it. Good, good, with, good catch, with, Brian. With it was curl, the hair. With the curl. <laughs> you, you totally nailed it. Oh, come on. This is a G rated show. Well, maybe PG, but I can't just go, <laughs> well, they were staring at. See, it has to be the S or the hair. 
<laughs> okay, well, we have definitely digressed a bit. I want to circle back to one of my favorite topics and something we didn't get to last week, and that's zombie fires. Talk to me a little bit about what they are and why they're so significant. So I was just talking to a colleague the other day who said very correctly and smartly that fires in the Arctic are an index for system change. Okay. So if you think about it, if everything's frozen or wet, it's going to be very difficult for fires to emerge. So zombie fires is something that is very recent, very recent. I don't know if discovery is the right word, but something we just started talking about. So the idea basically is that there are fires now in the Arctic, right? More and more and more. And some of them have the ability because of the opportunity for substrate that burns. So think about dry, dead things Mm -hmm. to move underground in the winter and keep burning some amount of embers. I don't think, you know, we're not talking like campfire fire, but some amount of embers smoldering occurs so that in the spring, they are able to reemerge in a similar location and maybe gaining intensity through the summer. So this idea that the Arctic is literally burning year round is something that is now a really important research topic that a number of groups are pursuing. And the way it provides an index is basically if there's stuff to burn, it will continue to burn. So it gives us an idea of, you know, thawing dynamics. It gives us an idea of drying. Like we're talking about wetting versus drying earlier. It basically means that there is increasingly more to burn in the Arctic than there used to be, that the ice that's entrained within the permafrost up to 90% of the deep permafrost is ice, that it's being melted. It's being thawed and it's moving away and transporting as water through other ecosystems and boom fires come back in to take its place. Now, you just said if there's something to burn, it will continue to burn, which in my mind begs a feedback loop question, right? So if you have this area that is burning, which would then potentially melt nearby permafrost and dry out the organic matter, which in turn would ultimately provide more fuel, do zombie fires or rather can zombie fires beget more or bigger zombie fires? So part of the research that we've got going in right now is looking at the interaction between disturbances, things like fire Mm -hmm. or, you know, off-season rain or thermokarst, which is just abrupt thaw, and what that means for the full system. It seems linear to me. It seems rational to me that when you have a forest fire, it will expand thaw. We know it could expand thaw in the top layers of permafrost. It could also expand abrupt thaw, these sudden punctuated loss of permafrost. But I think it's definitely something that we're still very much discussing throughout all of these these research teams, trying to figure out as fast as we can what's going on with the, the zombie fires and if there's any way to mitigate it, constrain it, forecast it, just get all of this information that needs to be conveyed to other scientists, to policymakers, and to the public. I love that there's such an urgency on getting this information out because these things are just so fascinating to me. And maybe it's the engineer in me, but because they're so new, I just want to learn all I can about what makes them work, why they work that way, and what we can do about them. Look, it's to the point where I already know I'm in the minority and that I wake up and read scientific journals over my morning coffee every day, (laughs) but I found myself actually reading a firefighting paper, what, a week or two ago that was talking about the difficulty in putting these things out. I think it was the Evans Road peat fire in something like 2008 that took 7.8 billion liters of water to put out. 
It's just mind-boggling. And I know last week you mentioned you were a firefighter for a while, so I'm sure this has piqued your interest as well. Can you speak a bit on any research going on from the firefighting perspective and any implications it may have? Yeah, I've been talking with actually a couple of different wildland firefighters about this. And there's, you know, a bunch of different kinds of sludges that they are starting to suggest for this purpose. And I, I again, have these concerns of putting excess chemicals into the environment and not really understanding the side effects and the impact not only to the ecosystem, but to the folks who are out there day after day, lying on the ground, fighting the forest fires and inhaling in some capacity, whatever is being distributed. Now, I want to switch gears here for a bit and talk about something really positive. Outside of all the incredible field and lab work you do, you also do a lot of outreach. In fact, I think it was the second or third time we had a conversation. I mentioned that I was impressed with the fact that you do as much outreach as you do. The fact that you keep your own website with all your work on it, that you're active on a lot of the social media platforms. It is also critically important to get the information out there. And let's be honest, if more researchers followed your lead, I wouldn't need to do what I do. But part of that outreach you do is to young kids, especially young women, and you do this as an if-then ambassador. Now, I think this work is so cool and so inspiring, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about what being an if-then ambassador means and the work you do as one? Yeah, of course. So the if-then ambassadorship was an idea conceived of by Lida Hill Philanthropies. Lida Hill is a lovely woman in Dallas who is trying to put her money to good use. And so they sponsored 125 US-based women scientists across all different fields to start doing outreach, publicity, sharing their science stories to inspire young women and young men to pursue STEM and to kind of understand that women are already in the sciences. I remember seeing, gosh, it must have been 2017, there were all male Nobel laureates. And one of them was questioned on this. And he said, well, you know, there aren't that many women in science right now. So I'm sure in 10 or 15 years, there will be more female Nobel Prize winners. And I remember being so upset and talking to five other women who were all scientists about this. And so the the mission of If Then is to show young people, especially women and girls, and especially women and girls of color, that if you can see something, if you can see a scientist that looks like you, then you know you can be that scientist. So there are a whole bunch of very impressive women at the top of their fields, scientists who have been doing this outreach over the past two years. We did get a little extended for COVID, which is great. And it means that we've done a lot of at-home YouTube specials. I just filmed another one last week. We've done, we've got a statue garden that just opened in Dallas. A giant orange statue of yourself, right? Yeah, orange, I guess, stood up well to the precipitation and weathering and is also Lida Hill's favorite color. And so they made these statues orange. And they are life-size. Before the garden, the statue garden opened, there were six statues of women in the United States. So now there are 125 more. There were only six? Yes, in the whole of the United States. I feel like a horrible human being that I did not know that there were only six statues It's pretty intense. I mean, six is a really small number. We're not even talking double digits. (laughs) You know, while I'm laughing at the shock of it, it really kind of makes me angry. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, 
God, that's deplorable. So we've also got um, a TV show, CBS Mission Unstoppable, which is on Saturday mornings. And I was on it, goodness, I think in February, where they have an amazing anchor go around and interview women who do science in different fields. It's really fun. There's activities that kids can do. So the whole mission is just to make sure that kids know that they can be scientists, that there's absolutely nothing stopping them. And there are already people doing it. And I think it's been extremely successful. That's awesome. And speaking of kids, you posted something the other day about having a museum exhibit yeah. that you didn't even know about. <laughs> well, I mentioned it to my daughter that I was speaking to you today and she said, you're going to talk to somebody who has a museum exhibit about them? I know that was a little overwhelming. A friend of mine who is on the board of directors for the Montana Science Center did a walkthrough the other day and found me in the museum. I guess there's a whole exhibit for me and two other scientists. And she sent me pictures and I was I didn't know it had happened and I was totally blown away. Well, congratulations. It's well-deserved. It truly is. Thanks. Well, my parents live up there, so I think we're going to go try to see it maybe in July. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah. Well, Dr. Miner, I have to say, I can't thank you enough for moving around your schedule and coming back this week to finish our conversation. It's always so good to chat with you. No, I'm happy to hang out and chat with you. This is the highlight of my week, so. Oh, yay. I made the highlight. <laughs> made the highlight reel this week. Okay, quick story. You know how at dinner time you're all around the table and you ask your kids, how was your day? And they go, good. And that's all you get. So we developed this thing called high-low. And at dinner every night, everybody has to tell what their high is for the day and what their low is as well. Now, you don't have to have a low, but you have to have a high. And that just gets them talking a little bit about their day. So I am happy that I'm your high. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a good idea. My parents always were like, say more. Yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, I got the same thing. And you know, before I had kids, I'd be over at friends' houses that had kids and they would just throw up their hands because they would ask, how was your day? Good. Did you do anything interesting? No. I mean, I realized we were all kids once. It just always <laughs> cracked me up. So we tried to figure out a way to actually make them talk without forcing them, because I think that's illegal. <laughs> Only in some states. <laughs> Only in some states. That's fair. God, I really am going to lose my G rating on Apple and Spotify. So we're going to end this right here. <laughs> However, before we go, why don't you remind everyone where they can find you if they want to follow your incredible research? So I'm on all the socials at Dr. Kimberly. And my website is also a great repository for information. And that's drkimberlyrain.com. Kimberly is spelled South African way. So it's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y-R-A-I-N. Excellent. Now, as I wrap this up, are you good with doing the ending again like last week? Sure. All right. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I truly hope you have enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Kimberly Rainminer as much as I have over the past two weeks. Be sure to follow her on her social accounts, especially LinkedIn. And a quick reminder, we are off next week while I'm out in the field. So aside from checking out the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. Oh, take the whole thing. And above all, make sure to keep it south of two degrees. <laughs>